Today on Peace Talks Radio, two women who find peacemaking power in the written word in different ways. First, Kim Rosen, author of the book Saved by a Poem. I don't know why they don't begin every meeting at the UN with a poem. Because that melting would happen, that melting of the mind and the heart. Human hardness cannot withstand the power of a good poem. And later, Sarah Wilkinson, founder of Project Peace Pal. Well, what about if I figured out a way to connect kids in the United States directly with kids their age in other countries? So number one, they could actually begin to have a... an alive experience of what life is like for kids their age in other places in the world, and then gradually begin a conversation about how to create peace in their lives. Two examples of the written word promoting peace, today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. On our program, we spotlight peacemakers throughout history and today and explore nonviolent conflict resolution strategies that can help us all deal with the conflicts in our daily lives. Today, two women find peacemaking power in the written word in different ways. Later, we'll hear from Sarah Wilkinson, an Albuquerque woman who's created a pen pal network across the world that allows young people to develop personal relationships with youngsters in far-off lands, promoting peace and understanding in the process. First, though, a woman named Kim Rosen, a psychotherapist and spiritual teacher who herself fell into a deep depression in the mid-1990s and found that poetry offered a guiding light out, a path to some personal peace. In 2008, she was about to publish a book about it called Saved by a Poem, when circumstances challenged her to test the power of poetry anew. I had just um, chosen to take the money from my, I sold my little house in upstate New York, and I put the money into stocks, and I saw the stocks plummeting, and impulsively, um, I sold all my stocks and put them into a very, very stable local fund named Starlight. I liked the name. And um, I wrote the biggest check I've ever written. And two months later, without having received any dividends, I got a call in my voicemail that Bernard Madoff had been arrested and that I had lost everything because the fund was completely invested with Madoff. And I sat down on the floor. I had no idea what to do. The phone is blaring its, you know, alarm, phone off the hook alarm. And over the alarm comes this poem that I didn't even know that I knew. It was a poem that a student of mine had brought into a workshop maybe a couple of years earlier. And um, it's a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye. And it's in her book, Words Under Words. And it goes like this. Before you know what kindness really is, You must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go before you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. 
before you know the tender gravity of kindness. You must travel to where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead at the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing inside. You must wake up with sorrow. You must talk to it until your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to purchase bread and mail letters. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. The poem mm. is called Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye in her book Words Under Words, and it's also in my book Saved by a Poem. So, Kim... That- Explain to us, this poem came to you, and, it, and hearing it, it sounds like perhaps that was the perfect poem, the perfect words for you. How did that impact you? What happened after that? What that poem did for me, I had, I had already finished writing my book, ironically, but I have to admit a little abashedly that it never would have occurred to me on my own in that moment to look f- to a poem for help, but it came to me. And I accepted it, and uh, it became my really it became my prayer. I I went to sleep with it. I woke up with it. I read it several times a day. I discovered that Naomi Shihab Nye had written it when she was in Colombia. Um, I don't remember the exact date, but the Indian in the white poncho who lies dead at the side of the road is one of the opium farmers um, it, during the opium wars in Colombia. And uh, I began to experience on a very profound level how my affluence had separated me from most of humanity. It was such an awakening to suddenly be walking out in the world with people who never had had any savings, which is most of the world, Um, and to be entering into connection with all people that way. And so um, the poem guided me there, and it guided me also, in a way, the most profound part of the poem for me has been, I always thought that the poem was about how if you get your heart broken, kindness comes out of you. You know, your heart breaks open and kindness comes out. But actually, what's happened, I, I hope that that's happened, I must say, but what I cannot deny has happened is that I broke open and kindness has been flooding into me and it never occurred to me that's what the poem was talking about. Friends offered me money, people offered me places to live, my hairdresser cut her rates, my landlord lowered my rent, 
um, you know, people who people would say to me, I've wanted to give to you for so many years, but you've been so in control and you've been so on top of it in your life and you're always the giver. I'm so grateful to have a chance to give to you now. Kim Rosen talking to Peace Talks Radio's Carol Boss from New York City during a book tour for her Saved by a Poem. Carol asked Kim to read a passage from her book about a rather extraordinary gathering of poets in war-torn Iraq. On a bombed-out street that was once a beautiful section of downtown Baghdad, a large tent was erected on August 28, 2006, in the midst of explosions and clashes. It was the first of many gatherings of poets in what came to be called the Freedom Space. There, while Sunni and Shiite militias roamed the streets propagating terror, men and women from both factions gathered to speak poetry together. The Shiites sat opposite the Sunnis as if it were a competition. But by the end of the event they were embracing and dancing together, because the poems from both sides voiced the same words, the same longings, the same wounds. So that's in your book, uh, Saved by a Poem, Kim. And these are areas that you're talking about where these extraordinary events have happened. These are areas where people have been killed for, for speaking poetry. Yes, it's true. Um, there's stories later in the book about a young man named Amon who uh, came to that first Freedom Space event and um, was later killed by al-Qaeda militants for um, be just sitting around with his friends and speaking poetry. And, uh, you know, there's, in the later Freedom Space events, which became much, much larger, that one, I think, had 25 people. And then in 2008, I know there was one where there were over a 1,000 people in the Freedom Space event, and they always have a chair with Amon's picture on it to remind them of the courage it takes to speak poetry in their circumstances. Well, this sounds like a, a very vivid, very powerful illustration of um, the recognition that that poetry is a, a pretty powerful form of peacemaking. Yes, yes, that's what's been very exciting for me in writing this book. Um, that it's not it's not only a book about peacemaking in conflict zones within us that can be um, created by poetry, but conflict zones around us and how deeply poetry touches below the edges of the delineations of conflict. Well, you just mentioned conflict zones within ourselves, so I want to ask you um, to share with us when you were first saved by a poem and... Hmm. In term and, and illustrate that in terms of um, just what you said, the conflict zones within ourselves as it pertains to you. Well, you know, um, there's been so many times when I've been saved by a poem. Um, you know, the first time I talk about in the book was when I was a child, but. Um, you know, as happens to so many people in America, not in other countries as much as in America, in the period of time between when I was a child and I loved poetry and I found poetry and it really helped me to integrate uh, fragmented energies within myself um, and my adulthood, what happened to me was high school and college, which completely turned me off to poetry. Um, so I really turned away from poetry in high school and college. And then in 94, I was in a very severe depression. 
I felt uh, immobilized. I literally couldn't do anything but clean my house. That's what I do when I'm depressed. And in cleaning my house, I found this old battered cassette tape that wasn't mine. Somebody, it must have fallen out of somebody's purse. And I threw it into the cassette tape deck, and it was this man's voice speaking poetry. Uh, the man was a man named David White, and he was reciting poems by all sorts of people. And it reached inside me, and it burst open. Really, what I feel it does is it bursts open the patterns that hold us in suffering, um, the patterns of thought. Poetry can undo them. In that bursting open, new information can come in. And for me, I decided to start what I thought was going to be memorizing poetry, kind of as a, a healing practice and also because I couldn't do anything else. And um, what I didn't realize is how deeply healing it would be and that I really... I make the delineation in my book between memorizing a poem and learning it by heart um, because memorizing really has to do with conquering, with power over whatever it is you're doing it to. Um, and learning a poem by heart is really taking a poem you love and letting it be your teacher and letting it find you and call you into intimacy with yourself so that you don't forget those lines because you've had such profound experience with them. What is it about poetry that, that heals, um, that can cause huge shifts in energy? Can it affect our bio? Does it affect our biochemistry? Yes, I, I'm so glad that you asked that. I like to think of, um, I think of it as uh, the shamanic anatomy of a poem. And, you know, a shaman is um, a medicine person in, in an indigenous culture who will often use drumbeat or song um, to, I think of it as melting the veils between the visible and invisible worlds. Because a drumbeat, I mean, we know this from... Um, our love of of music, whether it's rock and roll or trance dance or, you know, uh, heavy metal or classical music, there's a phenomenon that happens in the rhythm and the melody of the music that isn't just pleasurable to our minds, but it actually entrains our brain waves and causes biochemical shifts within us. You know, I don't know, it, you could maybe call it moving into alpha waves or something like that, but there's a biochemical phenomenon in the brain so that our ordinary thought patterns that keep us locked in the same old behaviors spring open and there's that that moment that I sometimes call the aha moment when a, another kind of wisdom can come in. This is Peace Talks Radio. I'm Carol Boss and we're talking with Kim Rosen, author of the book Saved by a Poem, The Transformative Power of Words. Kim, do you have any suggestions for listeners how they can find a poem that would be reflecting their voice and how they can apply it to their life? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, I'm really glad you asked. You know, um, my 50 favorite poems are listed in the back of the book in an appendix. Um, and so that's a place to start. But there's also um, a number of websites where you can search for poems by themes or words. There's so You can find almost any poem in the world on the web now. Um, my favorite website is www.poetryfoundation.org. And they have something they call the Poetry Tool. And you can just put in a keyword and they'll come up with lots of poems 
on that keyword. And um, you're sure to find among them poems that really speak the energies of what's most important to you. And I'll just say that I really recommend that you read poems aloud if you can. We've been so trained to keep them trapped on the page, but I love to think of it as awakening the poem from a page. Because as you were saying before, Carol, a poem is a physical event. It happens in your body. And so when you find these poems, read them aloud, and you may find that they speak to you in a deeper way than they might if you just read them on the page and then turned the page. Do you know of any peacemakers or leaders who have referenced poetry to help them be effective in in what they do? Well, my favorite, (laughs) my favorite story, I don't know if you're thinking of this as you say this, but... um, Uh, I love the fact that a few days after his inauguration, Obama was caught by a photographer with a big fat book under his arm before going into a very stressful uh, meeting. I, I don't remember what the meeting was, and everybody thought, of course, this was going to be a tome of law or something, but it turns out it was the complete poetry of uh, Derek Walcott, who is a St. Lucian poet, beautiful poems. There's a few of his poems in my list in the back of the book and also on the CD that goes with the book. Um, There's a poem of Derek Walcott's. But uh, out of that event of Obama being caught turning to poetry, um, there's a a phrase that got coined on the web, as so many do, of Obama poetics, one word. You can Google that word and find out about Uh, Obama's relationship to poetry. Can you think of anyone else? Well, I love this quote that um, John F. Kennedy said uh, at the death of Robert Frost. Um, John F. Kennedy said, when power leads us toward arrogance, poetry reminds us of our limitations. When power narrows the areas of our concern, Poetry reminds us of the richness and diversity of our experience. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. More with author Kim Rosen in a moment. And later, the peacemaking power of the written word exchanged between young people living continents apart. This is Peace Talks Radio, back after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear every program in our series dating back to 2003. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking with two women who believe in the power of the written word to promote peace in different ways. 
We return now to our conversation with Kim Rosen, author of the book Saved by a Poem. She's being interviewed by Carol Boss. You have written that you believe that poetry's popularity is growing as the instability of our world increases. Can you just talk about that briefly? Yeah. Um, you know, it's really, it's really in times of crisis that uh, much of the great poetry in the world has emerged, not only in times of crisis, but huge voices uh, in the poetic world have emerged. Anna Akhmatova, Marina Tsvetaeva, I think of, you know, the great Native American poets. So many poets are um, writing and creating out of these times of huge shift in world history. Um, times of, um, in a way, apocalyptic events. And I feel that we we may be in one of those times right now. And in those times, there's nothing that will speak to, po- speak to us uh, in the depth of the suffering and the not knowing and the ambiguity of what's happening. Nothing can hold the ambiguity, the both sides, the unknown, and take us to a, a deeper kind of wisdom. And it's also only poetry that can let us know that someone else has been where we are walking. I feel like when we really allow poetry into us deeply, not just reading the page and turning it and reading another page, but finding the poems that speak to our hearts the way you'd find the prayers that speak to your hearts or the the songs that speak to your hearts and taking them into us again and again that what happens is that the boundaries around our hearts begin to melt and you realize that you know the man sleeping on the subway vent or the 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 child in the FEMA trailer or the Maasai girl in a safe house in in Kenya or the Sunni poet or even the Shiite soldier um, that they're not separate from you you realize that they are you there's no boundaries inside a great poem. You just mentioned the words um, in a song. Do you feel the same things are going on in a song, or is it different than in an experience with a poem? I feel it's the same thing that goes on in a song, in a in a wonderful song. If you think of the words like, you know, from my generation, moons and dunes and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing way you feel when every fairy tale turns real. I've looked at love that way. You know, that's a poem, or my hero, Leonard Cohen. Ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So there, the, the song is working with metaphor, with image, with unpredictable turns of thought that crack our minds open to something deeper. That's what I think is going on in a great song, and that's what's going on in a great poem also. Can you talk to us about your visit to the rescue center or the safe house for girls in Kenya? That was in the Rift Valley, and that was a center opened by your your good friend, activist, and author of Vagina Monologues, Eve Ensler. Yeah, I'd love to. That's actually, I think I have to say, that's my favorite part of the book, that story. Um, Eve... Ensler is a friend and um, an incredible inspiration. She 
uh, wrote the vagina monologues, as you said, and out of the vagina monologues, she started a worldwide wo- movement, a worldwide movement to um, stop violence against women and girls. And she also wrote the foreword to Saved by a Poem. Um, and because of her, uh, I was just so lucky in the last two summers, summers here, winter there, to go to Kenya and visit a safe house for Maasai girls in Narok, Kenya. And I went there. Um, the first time I went, I I am a very, very shy person. <laughs> and... Um, you know, making overtures to teenage girls who don't seem to speak English. Turns out they understand English really well, but they're very reluctant to speak it. So they're all giggling in Ma, which is the language of the Maasai, and they also speak Swahili, and I don't speak either of those. And I'm sort of shyly trying to make overtures to them. There's about 50 of them that live at the safe house at any given time. And... um You know, we hadn't really connected. I'd been introduced to a lot of them, but we really hadn't connected. And so I was hiding in my room, and um, I heard them singing in the kitchen, just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful songs in Swahili. And so I went over to the kitchen, and as soon as I walked into the kitchen, everything goes quiet. You know how that is. (laughs) And um, they all look at me like I'm the adult and the white person, and... uh, one of them, a very uh, tall, beautiful young girl, comes and stands right in front of me, and in perfect English she says, Do you remember my name? And I was a goner. You know, I totally didn't remember her name. And I pulled the only name that I could think of out of my head, and I said, Salula? And everybody bursts into shrieks of laughter, which, you know, I must have made a huge mistake. And they all point at one of the youngest girls, Um, a girl who was uh, nine years old and had just been uh, rescued from a marriage in the middle of the marriage itself to a 42-year-old man. She had just come to the safe house a few months earlier. And they said, that's Salula. And the young girl in front of me said, I am Jacinta. Um, And then, you know, she's giving me an opportunity to redeem myself. She says, do you know any songs? And I say, well, I I know some songs, but what I really love is poetry. And um, then another beautiful, beautiful girl comes behind a cauldron of steaming cabbage in the kitchen, and she says, I write poetry. And um, I said, do you know any of them by heart? Can you recite any of them to us? And she says in her beautiful Maasai accent, she says, I am too shy for that. Um, and I said to her, well, how about if I recite a poem, and then then maybe you'll feel comfortable reciting yours. And she nodded, and everybody waited for my poem. And, you know, I know about 120 poems by heart. Um, and I'm going through the Rolodex in my mind. I'm going, this is nuts. None of these poems are appropriate for these girls. And, again, it was another Saved by a Poem Experience this poem by Mary Oliver, who that I hadn't thought of in in maybe years, called "The Journey," comes into my mind. May may I recite that poem here? Yes. It goes. One day you finally knew what you had to do, and began 
though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, and though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save Home, the Journey by Mary Oliver in her book Dreamwork and also in her collected works. What happened after you you um, spoke that poem? So it was incredible what happened. I mean, I was crying as I spoke the poem because I just had no idea how appropriate it was going to be until it came out of my mouth. And, you know, I was in a room full of girls who had they had all had to leave their fathers and their mothers and their sisters and their brothers and their whole villages that are committed to this practice of female genital mutilation. They had all had to like travel at night and hide under bushes and go barefoot on the on the rough roads to get to Narok to find their way to ask people where is the safe house and to find it. And a lot of the girls were crying and several of them just wrapped their arms around me and um and the best <laughs> the best part of the story is that then Jacinta who is the girl who spoke very good english um came up to me and she said who is this woman mary oliver is she maasai <laughs> and i said no she's american she's mazungu like me she's a white middle class woman just like me and it was so clear that um in that moment in poetry there is no race in in a, inside a good poem there's no race there's no culture there's no religion um you know it it is political without being sectarian and it is spiritual without being denominational you know because it touches the place that all of that springs from and i think the longing that all of us want to move towards it was it was such a profound experience how would you like to see poetry applied to do more good, to create peace? What what would that look like in, in families or in other places of conflict, even in international negotiations? Yeah, boy, boy, thank you for that question. I, well, first I'd like to start with my home country, America. And I would like to see Americans reawaken to the beauty and power and necessity of poetry. I think a lot of us, as I said before, were turned away from poetry. A couple of generations of Americans have been turned away from poetry, and we need to turn back, and we are turning back with Deaf Poetry Jam, with something called um, Poetry Out Loud, which is an initiative through the schools, the high schools of America, to get 
um, students to learn poems by heart, and they're totally loving it. Um, you know, I'd like to see poetry happening at the family dinner table. I'd like to see, I'd love to see uh, more of what I've seen, you know, where, where on, sometimes on city buses they have poems. Have you seen them, like poems in the subway and poems on the buses? And um, I'd just like to see poems like a, like a virus kind of taking over America, uh, first on a personal level and I don't know why they don't begin every meeting at the UN with a poem. I don't know why they don't begin every meeting of the whatever, you know, of the Department of Defense with a poem. I mean, how could we do what we do if we interspersed our quote-unquote peace talks with poetry? Because that melting would happen, that melting of the mind and the heart and and people fall helplessly into their compassion and kindness. They, you know, um, n- human human hardness cannot withstand the power of a good poem. So that's what I'd like to see. Kim Rosen is author of the book Saved by a Poem. For a link to her website, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today, the peacemaking power in the written word. In the poem Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye that Kim Rosen read, there was this line, And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to purchase bread and mail letters. Mailing letters is how Sarah Wilkinson is helping the world show off its kindness. She's the founder and executive director of Project Peace Pal, which facilitates a network of students around the globe communicating with each other by becoming pen pals and writing letters. Over 4,000 are participating in America and other countries, including many developing nations. Sarah Wilkinson brought one of the letters into our Albuquerque studios to show Carol Boss. This one is from Ghana. It's written by a 13-year-old girl. And she begins by saying, Dear Friend. So she's written this letter, um, not yet knowing who her peace pal will be. It's kind of a letter of request for a peace pal. Dear friend, Fasila Abukari is my name. I am a girl of 14 years old, and I am a Peace Club member. I live in Gumbehini in Tamale, northern Ghana, and I'm completing junior high school. My family consists of grandmom, father, mother, uncles, brothers, and sisters. My hobbies are riding bicycle, reading, writing, and cooking. I would love to have a pen pal from America, a girl. I love and belong to many people. And I like sharing, caring, and being gentle. By choosing to be gentle, I let go of anger and violence and thus improve my relationships. And then she goes on to describe her favorite food, her favorite color. And then she asks her peace pal what her favorite color and food and games are. And then she says at the end, I end here with a smile, your friend, Fasila Abukari. So this we will then match with a girl of the same age here in the United States, who, and they will begin a writing friendship. There was one class in particular I was presenting uh, to a group of fourth and fifth graders. The teacher introduced me and said, we're going to write letters today. The overall reaction of the kids was groaning. They're like, letters? We don't know how to write letters. We don't like writing letters. Letters. So in that case, I actually had some of these um, introductory letters that had been been written from another country overseas requesting a peace pill. And I was able to hand them out to the students. And in advance, I had looked at the student list and figured out which ones would go to which students. 
So within about, I'm not kidding, three minutes, I handed out these letters from another country. And the, I wish we could have been videotaping it because the transformation that occurred when these kids held these letters in their hands and started looking down at the written words, suddenly the same kids that were grousing about it a few minutes before were saying to the kid next to him, dude, check it out. Look what my peace pal wrote. And then a couple of them came up to me, and they had this kind of look of awe in their face, holding this letter saying, you mean this letter came from that country? I mean, it, it still gives me goosebumps. I mean, it was a magical experience. And suddenly, this is the best part. I turned around, and several of the kids had already sat down with a piece of paper and a pen and wanted to write their letter. No one had asked them to write their letter. They wanted to write their letter. The next thing they're asking is, well, where's the map? I want to see where this is. And wait, where's the dictionary? I want to spell this word so that my peace pal can understand. So it's a very exciting process that happens when kids get these letters. Do you think there's a difference between communicating um, with handwritten letters and what most of us in the world seem to be doing these days, emailing? And texting. And texting. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we often get this question, well, can I type my letter or can I email my peace pal? And the answer is no. There is a magical thing that happens with a handwritten letter, both for the writer and the one who's the recipient of the letter. I know that the process of writing a letter by hand really taps into a deeper place for the person who is writing. It's a more reflective process than clicking away at a keyboard and even more reflective than texting on a small keyboard. And then many of our students will add drawings or photographs to their letters. And you, it's much harder to do that with email. Um, and in most of the countries where we're writing, the students don't have ready access to the internet or computers. Um, in many places, the only way to even connect with them is by the uh, just traditional mail with handwritten letters. How did you um, actually build the contacts that you have around the world? Well, the first one came from a friend of a friend who was a recently returned Peace Corps volunteer, and he had lived in Togo, West Africa for two years, and he was our first uh, contact. And that was in 2007, about in August of 2007, we had about 400 Peace Pals around the world. And now in August of 2009, we have close to 4,000 Peace Pals in 15 countries around the world. So you may wonder how quickly that, how it developed so quickly. I would say it's um, because there's a real hunger and thirst for this kind of communication and connection. More with Sarah Wilkinson, founder and executive director of Project Peace Pal, in a moment, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com, where you can subscribe to a free monthly podcast, read partial transcripts of our shows, or sign up for a monthly newsletter. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're talking with two women who believe in the power of the written word to promote peace in different ways. And we return now to our conversation with Sarah Wilkinson. She's the founder and executive director of Project Peace Pal, which facilitates a network of students around the globe communicating with each other by becoming pen pals and writing letters. Here's Carol Boss. What's the background of, of Peace Pal? Where did the idea emerge from? Well, it first began in about 2006, I would say. Number one, I was noticing that conflict continue to show up in my life despite my desire and intention for harmony and peace. And that was really disturbing to me. And so I really started to reflect on the genesis of conflict in myself and in my life. And at the same time, I was volunteering at my son's school, which is an element, was an elementary school. And I started to notice how early conflict begins even with children. And that was also very disturbing. I started to notice that the patterns I was reflecting on in myself were also exhibited with these kids. Let's say, for example, just the tendency to want to blame someone else for an experience that we're having rather than taking responsibility for perhaps our part in it. So these ideas were all kind of settling in there. And at this school, I also began to notice that kids had a real curiosity for what life would be like for someone their age in another country. But they had very little real information about it. There was kind of frozen information in print, which wasn't really alive for them. I could, you know, as I was watching them read it in a book about a a life, let's say, in Africa or South America, it was clear that it was very separated from their own experience. But I also saw at the same time their desire to really know more about kids in other countries. And I also noticed that kids listen to each other a whole lot more than they listen to adults. So all of these things began to swirl around inside of me. And in 2007, Peace Pal was born. And it just kind of came together as, well, what about if I figured out a way to connect kids in the United States directly with kids their age in other countries? So number one, they could actually begin to have a, a, an alive experience of what life is like for kids their age in other places in the world, and then gradually begin a conversation about how to create peace in their lives, um, what would that be like? So I slowly began in 2007 to start the program. I know I read in one of your newsletters that um, it, it's about empowering young people through greater, and you use the term self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the importance of that? Well, to me, that's and, really and, essential. And the connection with peace. Yeah. When you, we look at the world, and when I started by just reflecting on myself and the lack of peace in my own life, um, I noticed that the steps to creating peace in my own life required greater self-knowledge. Noticing the patterns that I had, uh, noticing the things that tended to stress me out and make me more inclined to react rather than act consciously. And I found, looking around me, that there wasn't really um, 
a lot offered to young people, even today, about this process of realizing that in order for us to create peace in the world, we have to bring it back to ourselves first. That peace, in order for peace to begin in us, we have to begin to notice our own thoughts, our own feelings, and the patterns that we are perpetuating in our own lives and begin to correct that step by step in order to have a wider impact in our community or in the world at large. So has Project um, Peace Pal, through this network of pen pals, has, has it been accomplishing this, and how can you tell? Well, the connecting part, absolutely. Um, and the way we tell that is, number one, just the feedback that we get from the students. Um, I can think specifically of organizations in Pakistan and in Africa that have communicated with us saying how powerful it is for them, number one, to even find that Americans want to know about their lives. They've been under the impression that we really didn't even care. So it was very powerful for them to even know that anyone, let alone a whole generation of young people, wanted to know about their lives. And so we get some really positive feedback around the world. And then the feedback from Peace Pals here in the United States is um, a great deal of excitement about being able to connect with someone across the world. Universally, uh, youth in the United States, upon receiving their first or second letter from their Peace Pal abroad, always ask, what can I do for my Peace Pal? I want to do something. Because most of these people live in really poor circumstances. So first of all, I just have to preface it by saying how inspiring that is to see in young people that this is a universal desire that is just ignited to be of service to others through this process. And a case in point uh, happened in the spring of 2008. It's a school based here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they are writing to Peace Pals in Pakistan. And with the war in Pakistan, this school was experiencing intermittent access to electricity. So they were without lights, they were without water, and the school would be forced to shut down even in the middle of the day. So the Peace Pals here were really moved by that. Um, And they asked their Peace Pals in Pakistan, well, what can we do? And the Peace Pals there said, well, you know, what would really be helpful is to have a generator so that we could have lights and water during the school day and continue our school day. So we asked them, well, what, what would that cost? And uh, the reply was $450. Well, I was floored because most of the fundraising projects we've done before that were $50 here, $100 there. So $450 seemed like a huge project to me. So I passed it along to the teacher there, and he too said, oh, my gosh, that's, you know, I don't know how realistic that is. Within two weeks, that school those students had mobilized and done a series of bake sales and raised $450. And we were able to wire the money to the school in Pakistan, and they were able to purchase the generator and continue their classes. And they sent us wonderful photographs of them you know, with the generator and um, a banner that they made saying, thank you, Peace Pals, um, in Albuquerque. So what would you say the essence of Peace Pal as it has developed what is its essence? Well, you know, our, our curriculum uh, that we have written for facilitators and teachers to use in a group or classroom setting is entitled Peace Begins in Me. And the critical word there is in. You know, in a lot of 
conversations about peace. It's like, may peace be with you or um, let there be peace. But it's a very active component. Peace begins in me right now. And we try to instill that essence of the program in all of the projects that we have around the world um, so that it begins with the first step of writing a letter. So it's a very active process that everything we do, we do intentionally and as consciously as we can, including noticing that peace can begin with us, within us. Can you share a story about uh, a young leader who has been part of Project Peace Pal? When we were talking on the phone, uh, you were mentioning Max. The son oh, of Tony. Max, yes! <laughs> Max. He's an example of a, one of the Peace Pals who is in eighth grade. And um, he started Peace Pal in 2008. And is such a huge fan of Peace Pal that every time I see him, he asks for another Peace Pal. So at this count, he now has four Peace Pals. So Sarah, where do you see this going with young people? What do you think they will carry forward with them? I think at the heart of it is a desire to be of service to others. I see this over and over again, uh, particularly with uh, youth here in the United States. It opens up a whole new world for them that is not electronic. It's not about the latest gadget. It's about another person and another person who is in need. That other person may not even perceive that they're really that much in need. But instantly, as soon as the American youth begins to hear about the circumstances of the life that this other person's leading, um, what I see, for example, if I imagine some of these kids that are 13, 14 now in 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are driven by the desire to be of service somehow in their lives, whether that's in the work that they do or in the volunteer work that they do outside of their living. But I, I think this opens a door that you can't just shut. I think it opens a door that leads to other doors. And along with the participants here that I've been asking you about, what about um, stories you've heard about uh, youth in other countries in terms of what this program has meant for them and their sense of their future, especially in the developing countries? Well, one of the projects that I'm most excited about right now, in uh, August of 2009, we connected with a group in Burundi, Africa. And this is a group of teenagers at a high school who have lived, some of them, the last 10 years in refugee camps or in jungle settlements to avoid the civil war in Burundi. Uh, many of them come from, um, it's a Hutu and Tutsi uh, conflict area. So many of them have lived through horrendous violence. And so when I, we initiated this contact between Project Peace Pal and their group in Burundi, they wrote a beautiful peace statement. And I'd like to read just a, a few sections of it, if I may, because I think that will speak to your question so this is a statement that they dictated uh, to the headmaster to write for them. Um, our hope as an after-war youth is to be of a kind in improving the stabilization of peace, not only in Burundi, but worldwide. We would like to make difference from our fathers who made us to live in such bad conditions, and the world will learn from us. Our hope is to see all young people from Burundi forget the past, and dwell with the present 
and start investing in the future after a long period of destruction. So a friend can be one thing that would comfort us and help us to arrive at considering each other as sisters and brothers of one father and one mother. Mm. These students in Burundi, Africa, feel like we are holding them. You know, in this fragile time that they're repatriating their schools and the villages after this very difficult period, the challenges that arise, they feel like they have a friend who's holding their future with them and that we're extending our hand to them and saying, here, you know, let's, let's do this together. You're not alone. We want to be a support to you. So you had this idea just a few short years ago, a vision. Has um, that vision been surpassed for you? Oh, far beyond anything I could have even imagined. And it's, it continues to inspire me every day. By the same token, along with it surpassing your uh, initial vision and your dream, there must be some lessons that you've learned from all of this. Well, it's been really difficult. I mean, I can be perfectly honest about that. I mean, it's become an all-encompassing part of my life. I mean, it, in order to have this kind of program grow the way that it has, I've basically dedicated my life for the last few years to it. And it's been an incredibly intensive process. Um, and I think one of the more difficult lessons has been, um, well, we've had a number of partners, both in the United States and internationally, express a great deal of enthusiasm for the project initially, but then not follow through. And the hardest part for me about this whole program is when um, kids experience disappointment. When I have trusted, for example, an international partner um, proposing that they wanted to be the recipients of Peace Pal Letters, and then I've gone to the trouble to organize, in one case in 2008, 100 students writing to a country and then they never received a reply. And that was a very difficult experience for me and for the students. And I ended up having a lot of disappointed kids. So I had to, you know, we had a, a discussion at the end of the school year when it was clear that they really were not, it wasn't that the letters were taking a long time. They were just not going to come. So I tried to find a way to make a peace lesson out of it. Because the last thing I wanted was for this group of kids here in the United States to be harboring resentment and frustration about the kids in this other country. So we tried to, um, number one, realize that the letter we had sent was a gift and that a gift doesn't necessarily need to be returned in kind. And then number two, I asked them to really imagine what we had studied about that country. What was daily life like there? It was really hard. And so we did some discussion about, well, what could be the reasons that these kids did not write back to us? So we spent quite a bit of time reflecting on those possibilities. And by the end of that, the kids here, I think, would have been willing to say and did say, you know, okay, we can let it go. It was an experience we had. It wasn't what we hoped, but we can let go of any resentment or disappointment we had. But that is an ongoing challenge with this program because... It is hard sometimes to get the letters back and forth. And so it takes perseverance and real dedication. What are the costs that are involved with maintaining this project? 
Well, for individual peace pals, there's no charge uh, to become a peace pal. We, the, our biggest cost by far is postage. We also subsidize all of our international partners. What that means is in the countries that we're writing to, these schools and community groups could not participate in this program if we didn't subsidize it. So we pay for their postage. We pay for school supplies like paper and pens and pencils and erasers and envelopes. Um, if they're in a country where it's Spanish-speaking or French-speaking, we pay them to translate letters. Um, so the program costs are all run by Project PeacePal. PeacePal is a nonprofit organization. Yes, that's right. In 2007, we received our 501c3, so it's an entirely not-for-profit organization. So we do rely on donations and funding from uh, foundations in order to continue the program. And the, and the goal, talk about a long-term goal in terms of PeacePal. Well, my vision is that, um, first of all, that the organization itself will be run by young leaders in, let's say, seven to ten years, let's say by the year 2015, 2016. I won't even need to be around. PeacePal will be completely run by young adults who have basically taken over the organization to achieve an agenda that they have determined. But the dream, of course, is that in our mission statement, we talk about a connected web of young leaders. And I love that image of, in this day and age, um, you know, with people all around the world communicating with each other, that young people who start the PeacePal program today, as they become leaders and adults in their own communities, and number one, hopefully, have actually embedded some of these peace skills so that they're really using them in their lives and that it's kind of second nature to them. And secondly, that they have friends in a lot of the countries that are distant, and if they find themselves in positions of um, decision-making, making decisions that are more human and holistic because they have a personal connection in these countries, and they know that it's not just a a population that you can read statistics about, but it, they're real people with real lives and real dreams and families. And just everyone has the desire to be able to live in peace and have a family and have their friends and know that they can live um, a full life. That's Sarah Wilkinson. And to link to her project, Peace Pal, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003. Also at peacetalksradio.com, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, subscribe to our free podcast, and learn how you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help support the work of this program, all at peacetalksradio.com. We also had support from the McCune Charitable Foundation, the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Allie Adelman wrote and plays our theme. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening. (music) 